0: If you get a custom tailored suit, it's going to fit perfectly and make you look great. Think about that with Noble First for your organization. No matter what the size of your company is, Enoble First will analyze your data and collaborate with you to custom tailor digital solutions so you can focus on making your organization grow. When it comes to data-centric solutions specifically for your organization, choose Noble First. Anoble First makes living simple. See for yourself at EnobleFirst.com, E-N-N-O-B-L-E-First.com.
1: And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
0: Welcome back to the conversation. A very special guest today joining us. A man has been in the world of money and finance for many, many decades. He is a syndicated talk show host, best-selling author, an attorney, and a CPA. He's Bob Zadek, founder of LendersFunding.com and host of The Bob Zadek Show. Heard locally here in the San Francisco Bay Area, Sunday mornings at 8 a.m. at 860 a.m. The Answer. Bob, I want to drill down into your arena of expertise. Uh, we talked earlier about Wells Fargo announcing that they're going to shut down the HELOC program, at least for the time being, and um, what essentially that that suggests in terms of their outlook for um, the ability of lenders to pay back and and so forth. On the broader scale, when it comes to, to business lending, this current crisis that we're in, how is this going to impede a borrower's ability to access existing lines of credit, for example? I, 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 are, are there going to be stricter guidelines suddenly put in place that's going to make the ability of a company to borrow money, to get some liquidity in to, so they can essentially survive, keep afloat, and keep moving forward? Um, I, I, is is there going to be downward pressure on businesses, and is it going to become more difficult for them to qualify?
2: Probably not, uh... But let me explain, because that sounds like a counterintuitive answer, but it wasn't intended to be, nor will your listeners see that it is not counterintuitive. Most small businesses, they borrow, the way they get a loan, either they offer the lender collateral, which is a lien, a mortgage, on assets that they have, or they have a demonstrated cash flow which shows they can service and pay back the loan. In other words, the lender makes a loan, or let's say a suicidal, with the knowledge that they are likely to get paid back unless unanticipated things happen. Now, the primary collateral in many small business, certainly in the I'm a small, medium-sized business lender, and in that world, the most valuable collateral is account receivable inventory and equipment. Now, focusing on accounts receivables, a business borrows against accounts, which means it has to have sales to create the accounts. If it doesn't have sales, it doesn't have accounts, and it can't borrow against accounts because it doesn't have any. Therefore, the amount of business activity will dictate how much a business can borrow. Second of all, and more importantly, if a business has accounts receivable that are paid very slowly, because the one who owes the money doesn't have the money, then those accounts become stale and you can't borrow against them. And therefore, that business doesn't have any availability, can borrow if you have the accounts, but doesn't have current accounts. Now, now they'll go up one notch to the lender. Now, the lender who borrows from a bank, the non-bank lender, borrows against its loans. As its loans get to be non-performing, it cannot borrow, and these pass-through accounts, like a snake that swallows a mouse, and you can watch the mouse be a bulge in the snake as it goes through the body of the snake and out the other end, those pass due, slow-paying accounts work their way through the system, and some lenders are waiting for the other shoe to fall, and we haven't been in this crisis long enough to have this really happen. So it's going to happen, and the absence of collateral will cause credit to dry up. So the money is there if the business has the collateral, but the business doesn't have the collateral, and and nor the cash flow, and therefore, while it could borrow if it had those attributes, it doesn't have them.
0: So this could be a, a significant challenge for a business that say let's say doesn't have any major assets for, for example they they lease the building that they're in they don't own it they have some manufacturing equipment but not of tremendous value there's there's not enough there to essentially secure a asset based Loans. So the other option historically has been um, factoring, where they have a third party that comes in, buys the, essentially your outstanding slow pay invoices and says, we'll give you X number of dollars on the dollar or for the dollar uh, in exchange for these invoices. Now we'll go out and collect them at full value and we'll keep the balance and everybody wins. You get an immediate influx of cash flow. We make some money in the process. We're all happy. That, of course, is incumbent upon the notion that the people who owe these outstanding invoice balances have the cash flow capacity to pay. But if all of a sudden it's the domino effect here, I'm wondering, Bob, what does it leave a business then in terms of of funding options if they don't have asset-based collateral and the ability to turn their outstanding invoices into cash is suddenly... Uh, tremendously inhibited by concerns over the ability, again, of of these clients to actually pay what's due, does that essentially put a potential business on the rails for for a
2: bankruptcy? Well, bankruptcy is a legal event. Let me just answer it more broadly. Does it put that business at risk? You bet it does. And uh, where a business has no way to satisfy a lender's concern that the loan will be paid back, either from cash flow or from assets, that business has to either put in equity, which is the owner's own money, or get a loan from a lender, often the government, who will, in the interest of keeping the economy chugging along, will make loans where there is a diminished likelihood of being paid back Think of student loans, by the way, where the government does act about a, of about several billion dollars of or a lot more of student loans. Government makes student loans all the time with no belief on the planet. They're going to get paid back. They're hoping for the best. So the government is, in many ways, a lender of last resort where a business doesn't qualify for a sensible loan from a lender who cares about getting paid back? The next stop is equity or the government or try something else.
0: There in the world of lending is a term, material adverse effect. And essentially it, it means that there can be outside factors that may, in one fashion or another, um, inhibit – or or greatly curtail the ability of a borrower to pay back the money that has been borrowed. And and these can be all kinds of sets of circumstances, but oftentimes it it, it leads to a a, a big challenge, and that is a restriction of credit. And um, I have to wonder, under the current COVID-19, does this qualify as an MAE? And if so, how does that impact people that are either in process or
2: looking to get loans? Well, that's, that's a complex legal issue, uh, but material adverse change clauses, this is even a nickname It's called a MAC, a material adverse change clause, is really not relevant to this kind of lending because a material adverse change clause merely gives to a lender who has committed to make a loan, made a promise, I will lend you the money, I says the lender. Um, that lender who has committed will be relieved of the commitment if bad things happen, and some of those bad things are a material adverse change. So material adverse change laws will leave the lender of a commitment to loan, but in the world of small and medium-sized businesses, most loans are not committed, Uh, they're discretionary, therefore the lender cannot make a loan just because it doesn't want to make the loan, it doesn't need a reason. So in our world, Craig, a small or medium sized business, the world of entrepreneurs, the wonderful world I live in every bit of the day, in that world things like material adverse change courses are kind of not relevant because of the discretionary nature of the loans.
0: All right, what about at the, 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 the higher tier level? Uh, you're, you're talking about then significant loans going to big corporations. And you may be a corporation like, uh, I don't know, Boeing uh, or others that have been so adversely impacted. Boeing, of course, had its own set of problems leading into all of this, certainly exacerbated by the impact of COVID-19. Uh, could this potentially then put any of those relief funds, so to speak, at risk for a major corporation?
2: Of course, in fact, uh, corporations, many corporations have which have committed lines of credit, they have been drawing down these lines of credit, even though they didn't need the money because they wanted to draw down the money when the lender had to lend it to them before the lender found a reason not to lend. So there have been substantial drawdowns of committed lines of credit as businesses build up a nest egg. Now, it's inefficient borrowing because you're borrowing money and paying interest on money you don't need. But you're doing so just to have an operating cushion in case a bad thing happens and the bank refuses to lend because of a Mac or something else sometime in the future. That's a defensive loan, a defensive borrowing by a business to protect against it losing its line of credit sometime in the future when it might really
0: need it. We understand, of course, at the end of the day, this is all about risk and reward, and you have to weigh the risks in relationship to the reward, whether you're a small entrepreneur just getting started to a major corporation deciding to uh, pivot into a new direction and um, trying to help us better understand what that risk-reward ratio is going to look like in the quote-unquote post-COVID-19 shutdown economy. That's going to be the topic for the next segment of our conversation with Bob Zadek. Bob is a CPA. He's an attorney, founder of LendersFunding.com and a best-selling author. His program, The Bob Zadek Show, can be heard every Sunday morning at 8 a.m. here in the San Francisco Bay Area at 860 a.m. The Answer. Information, by the way, about Bob's show, resources as well, bobzadek.com. That's B-O-B-Z-A-D-E-K.com. A brief timeout, back to more of our visit after this. <laughs>
1: And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
0: And welcome back to the conversation. We continue our visit today with best-selling author, syndicated talk show host, attorney and CPA Bob Zadek. He's the host of the Bob Zadek Show, heard in the San Francisco Bay Area, Sunday mornings at 8 a.m. at 860 a.m. The Answer. And um, he's also the founder of LendersFunding.com. We've been um, very lucky to have Bob join us today as he shares some insights into where things are at in the world of finance, business, and perhaps the broader picture of what will the post-COVID-19 shutdown economy, the new economy, look like. And and, and to be sure, Bob, we've seen things happen where the announcements almost every day that uh, certain department store chains are Closing even more stores, restaurant chains. One announced just a couple of days ago, um, a concern that had 57 stores uh, restaurants that have been closed because of COVID-19. They're leaving them shut down. And it, certainly, there's been aspects of the economy that was kind of on the rails prior to all of this. Uh, big names, historic names we all grew up with, like Sears and J.C. Penney's and and Neiman Marcus that are all facing um, complete financial ruin in part because of COVID-19 and in part because of the changing face of the the landscape of the way we do business. And I have to wonder, in a post-COVID-19 shutdown economy, both globally and and here at home, how much more will the way we do business, earn and spend money change?
2: A lot. And the answer, Craig, I believe uh, is we will experience in the next decade, changes in every aspect of American economic, political, and social life, changes of a magnitude we have never experienced in our country, all caused by a little bug, the virus. And as an example, as one example, and to me, Greg, it is, I pray that I will be alive for the next 50 years to watch this happen. Because as you will see from my understanding or prediction or belief, all of the changes are profound and most importantly, for the better. In, if we can use post-COVID to be 10 or 20 years from now, as was described by post-COVID, life in America will be so much better as a result of this little bitty bug that it'll be a delight to see. To give one example, just one example, and watch how this works, Greg. People are discovering, myself of course including, how easy it is, compliments of technology, how easy it is to work from home. And when the the shelter at home requirements are lifted, millions of workers will say, you know, going to an office is just plain dumb. I like working from home. It's, It's really pleasant. I work my own hours. Everybody becomes an entrepreneur, more or less. And it's pleasant. And the concept of commuting to an office just to use the same computer you're using in the comfort of your home makes no sense. And the social life will either be personal social life or replaced by Zoom or whatever the next level of technology is. It's dumb to go to an office for many people. So people are going to discover that. Now, Craig, now the fun starts. So now, as we discover, that going to an office is dumb, and maybe we'll go there once a week to pick up free computer paper or something like that, um, and hang out and do meetings in person, maybe, but mostly we'll work from home. Well, what does that mean? Does it make sense to live in a cramped apartment in a downtown area when you could live a thousand miles away? In a condo or your own home, anywhere in the United States, and earn this and earn the same salary, which buys a lot more in the Midwest than it does in Brooklyn. Then live in the Midwest. We have the quality of life is a billion times better. So now people discover that. And now what happens? Office buildings become dumb because no one wants to go there. So now the plywood is nailed on the windows of the office buildings. Well, then what happens? Well, once that happens, then the cities lose their tax base, because people aren't going there just to work, which means now there's a political, there's a human migration to the middle of the country. Now, what that means is now voters move to the middle of the country with their wealth, which means now cities lose their political power and their economic power to the benefit of the rest of the country. And the population gets more dispersed, which means now economic life isn't governed by a few major East and West Coast cities. It's governed by the population at large and the economic power. Now what happens? Public service unions lose their power because they no longer need mass transit. We no longer need municipal police forces. We no longer need huge municipal hospital systems. So now public and teachers... We no longer need public service unions, and they have no power anymore, which means the pension problems disappear because now the rest of the country has absorbed all the workers, and they are much less likely to be unionized. Now what happens? Now political power is now spread throughout the entire country, and it doesn't reside in New York, Washington, Chicago, L.A., and San Francisco, and Seattle. It's now dispersed. The quality of life of everybody is much better. Because now we're living in places where the quality of life is better. Cities will remain. They will be cultural centers and social centers, but not economic powerhouses and not population centers anymore. Mass transit will disappear as a major expense. Because people who live in Arkansas and Mississippi and all the Midwest do not think about mass transit. They get in their cars and they drive with minimal traffic by themselves, happily, 10 minutes to work. Life in America will be unrecognizable complements of the virus. The effects give me goosebumps because everything I have said is for the better. A deconcentration of power, return to federalism with power spread all over the 50 states, uh, no power centers anywhere in the country. Life will be sweet and good and free.
0: And of course, the irony is we've already begun to see some of the early signs, the early benefits of what you're alluding to. The notion that, uh, for example, the average commu- commuter here in the San Francisco Bay Area, they have recaptured hundreds of hours back to their life, back to their family, because they're not spending that time on the freeways going to and from work every day. The increased uh, level of efficiency. I've even commented to folks about the fact that I get into my little home office here and start my work day at the exact same time that I normally do, but I get so much more work done without all the interruptions. Now, to be sure, there is a sense that you miss some of the face-to-face uh, collaborative interaction, and that can be substituted with things like go-to-meeting and, and the occasional go-into-the-office experience. But I suspect you'll see companies downsizing their real estate requirements, more people working from home, And talk about better efficiencies, Bob, Um, where right now the average corporation has to pay for every cubicle and put a computer in there and a telephone in there and provide real estate and resources and printing machines and all the support services that go into maintaining a large corporation. Well, suddenly you say to your employee, um, you know, here's your compensation and you get a $50 a month um, allowance that relates to what you might need for office supplies and that's it suddenly now the efficiency of what goes to the bottom line increases pretty significantly when instead of a company having to provide for 500 employees, 500 computers, those computers are now all of a sudden
2: owned by the employees themselves. Craig, we're going to have, I predict, whoever president in 2030 is going to declare some Monday in March to be COVID-19 day, and we'll all celebrate Um Uh, because it took COVID-19 to shake us and have us rethink something we have just been done as a matter of habit. And the quality of life will be so much better as a result. And also, in terms of the collegiality and loss of the workplace, um, that's true to some degree. But what that means is people's social life will not be dictated by who happens to have the adjacent desk. It will be picked It'll be dictated by who you want to spend your time with. And that means the quality of social life gets better, and more time with families. And while this is very difficult, living through this period, of course, is painfully difficult. Our forefathers lived through eight years of the American Revolutionary War period. Was it worth it or not? We are, but that changed America profoundly. This change is painful and seems too long, and everybody's getting a little crazy about it. All I can say is what I've done to myself is I look to the future, to the true post-COVID-19 world with all of the benefits that I have listed and many more that I just haven't thought of. And I say I can, le- I can make it through this because the future is going to be so gosh darn good. I can't wait.
0: Syndicated talk show host, CPA, lawyer, founder of LendersFunding.com, Bob Zabek. Bob's program, by the way, can be heard locally in the San Francisco Bay Area Sunday mornings at 8 o'clock. He is syndicated, so you can get more information about the other locations where you can catch the program, as well as a whole list of uh, great resources Copies of past programs, podcasts, etc., by going to his radio program website, That's bobzadek.com. That's B O B Z A D E K.com. And our thanks to Bob Zadek for being with us on today's edition.
2: And now back to
1: Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
0: We've often, I think, on the topic of taxes as Americans, drawn the conclusion that historically it was things like the Boston Tea Party and the sense of taxation without representation that spurred the American Revolution and brought America to where she is today. My next guest, though, will suggest mm, not quite true. Played a role, to be sure. But in fact, instead of the revolution sparking by, uh, sparked by high taxes, it would instead be outrage against British attempts to suppress God-given those so-called inalienable rights that we see articulated in the Constitution that we have today. Some insights now as we're joined by the director of the Center for Military and Veteran Studies at Coastal Carolina University in South Carolina. He's also the author of 16 best-selling books. His latest is entitled By the Hand of Providence, How Faith Shaped the American Revolution. And, Rod Gregg, thanks so much for being with us tonight.
1: Thank you. Glad to be here.
0: What headed you down this trajectory? I mean, obviously, you've spent a lot of your life in the arena of, of looking at the Battle of Gettysburg in one of your books. You, you, you've been very much focused on the founding of our nation and and the roots that we have. And, and I think, to be sure, most of us, certainly people listening to a program like this, see the faith-based roots of our nation. But to take it a step further now and, and suggest that as much as we've typically understood the American Revolution to be sparked by taxation without representation actually coming down to something a lot more valuable, quite frankly. Uh, this, this, I think, is some new news for folks.
1: Well, I think it's uh, it's an old story that needs to be re- retold because it's been uh, neglected in our day and has been largely forgotten uh, by uh, by our nation. But it, it's really uh, it goes to the heart of who we are and, and what we became as a nation. And the American Revolution was... A faith-based revolution because Americans were a faith-based people and that faith was a biblical one so the things that you mentioned uh, taxation lack of representation in Parliament uh, events that uh, were more of a catalyst like the Boston PT Party other protests all those things were uh, had a role and all of them uh, were kind of a dominoes falling but uh, they were symptomatic of something deeper and that is that the American people is as, as you put it well um, American people were, were biblical. colonial American people and the Americans at the time of the Revolution were uh, biblically literate. Now, it doesn't mean that everybody was devout. You had the, the devout, you had the nominal, you had the uninterested. But the, the American thought at the time was uh, firmly founded on the Judeo-Christian worldview. Uh, the culture was um, predominantly Protestant. It was overwhelmingly christian and it was almost universally judeo-christian in its approach and that was the foundation of american culture law and government so when these events occurred these controversial events over a period of time increasing numbers of uh, americans came to to view king george the third and parliament as attempting to usurp the higher law of god and to uh, Force the law of man. Instead, they saw them as uh, usurping uh, what they called inalienable or God-given rights—rights rights to life, to liberty, to what they called the, uh, the freedom to pursue happiness—and they came to view, eventually, uh, in great numbers, uh, King George III as a tyrant. That's why uh, American troops marched off to war in the Revolution under battle flags adorned with the ba- with the slogan that said, "Resistance." To tyrants is obedience to God.
0: You you take the title of your new book by the hand of Providence um, from a quote from George Washington, um, and I think as we think of him as uh, you know one of the key founding fathers, uh, uh, the first president of the United States. Although it was somebody in there actually for a couple of days or something? I forget all the details on that, but 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 widely recognized as the first president of the United States. Uh, as we see the role that he played, Valley Forge, all the way through the list. Give us some insights in terms of this man in particular and the, the role that his faith played in taking the risk that he did in the founding of our nation.
1: Well, and some people have made the, the case, uh, I think kind of a weak one, the case uh, in recent uh, years that the presidents of the Continental Congress uh, in those days before the Constitution, during the the time of the Articles of Confederation, were in a sense presidents, but they were not president of the United States. Uh, Washington was the first. It's it's really you really cannot overemphasize the influence of George Washington. Now, uh, the American Revolution was really taken forward by the American people. They're often overlooked, and the leaders reflected the worldview, the faith, of the American people. You had the American people, you had their leaders in the Continental Congress, and then you had uh, George Washington, who was really heads above all others. Um, and he was greatly influential in inspiring his officers and troops to stay in this, uh, this movement, to stay in this revolution. And he also inspired the American people, and it wasn't because... He was a good general, and he became a good general. He became a great strategist, a good tactician, but he grew into that. What inspired the American people about Washington was his character, and that character was based on his personal faith, and that faith was clearly
0: biblical. And that faith. Talk, talk to me about your research in terms of the influence on that faith, on the decisions and the risks that he took personally um, in the American Revolution.
1: Well, Washington... was um, a a low-church Anglican uh, who was very serious about his faith. He was quiet about his faith. He wasn't the kind of man who would sit around like Sam Adams, for instance, and and, 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 uh, engage or lead a dinnertime theological discussion. Uh, He was a low-church Anglican. He he didn't speak in the, the vernacular of a 21st century evangelical, although his doctrine... Personal doctrine that he believed, as a as an Anglican, was certainly uh, uh, in in that category of being a historic evangelical uh, Orthodox Christian doctrine. He was certainly not a deist, as some have claimed. Uh, there were very few deists actually involved among uh, the American people and, and among the founders, their leaders. Uh, the um, the historian there was a historian uh, in the 20th century, Perry Miller, who spent his life. Studying the colonial era. He really was a great expert on American colonial life in the colonial era. and He described it well. He said that deism was what he called an exotic plant that never took root in America because of the overwhelming influence of the biblical worldview, that Judeo Christian worldview. Uh, so a deist was one who, who believed in an impersonal God, almost like a force. Uh, a a force-type creator who uh, launched and jump-started his creation, then walked away from it. That's not the God that George Washington believed in. and uh, He was consistent in both his private writings, which were voluminous, and also in his his public statements, which were many, and consistent in expressing uh, that uh, faith, which was clearly, without question, a biblical faith. And so, in uh, in, in Washington's uh, decision making uh, and the things he did, the things he didn't do, really governed by this. You look, for instance, uh, he stands in real contrast to some of the leadership demonstrated by British commanders, uh, who went into areas sometimes, uh, particularly in the South, where uh, uh, they could have probably, had they handled the war right, could probably have. Uh, uh, Americans were all reluct- generally reluctant revolutionaries, and the British in some areas could have uh, kindled uh, a great deal of support. But their behavior, their conduct, uh, really alienated people, and it made uh, Americans in droves go over to the side of the Patriot Movement. Well, Washington was contrast to that in the way that he treated his enemies, the way he treated loyalist civilians. He made sure that they were not taken advantage of. He made sure that they weren't robbed and plundered like the British did. There was a real discipline there. He also uh, 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 routinely observed victories by holding worship services. Uh, He encouraged his troops to observe the National Days of Prayer that the Continental Congress called, and there were many of them during the Revolution. Uh, He at one time uh, urged his troops to conduct themselves, in his words, uh, with their behavior as becoming a Christian soldier. Uh, He made sure that uh, the Army was equipped with chaplains he took that very seriously and encouraged his men to, uh, to pick chaplains who were strong in their faith. Uh, so you see consistently through Washington's words and his behavior, this character and this character was reflection of his personal faith.
0: If you've just joined our conversation tonight, Rod Gregg is with us. He, of course, is the director of the Center for Military and Veteran Studies at Coastal Carolina University in South Carolina. A new book entitled By the Hand of Providence, How Faith Shaped the American Revolution. We'll come back to more of our look at the role of faith in the founding of our nation as this edition of Lifeline continues.
1: And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
0: We have been investigating the faith-centered foundation of the American resistance as found inside the pages of this new book, By the Hand of Providence. By the way, for you homeschooling parents out there in particular, I mean, the book is great for anybody. But homeschooling parents, you're looking for a great book that can be a wonderful teaching tool. Uh, You're going to want to go out and pick up a copy of this. Howard is the publisher available at bookstores throughout the Bay Area. Those One or two still exist, am I right? I'm just checking. And, of course, through Amazon.com. Its author is with us tonight, Rod Gregg. Rod is the director of the Center for Military and Veteran Studies at Coastal Carolina University in South Carolina. By the way, a number of phenomenal books that he has penned down through the years, over 16 of them now, all told, on topics of the Battle of Gettysburg, uh, Civil War, on and on the list goes. So check out anything uh, written by Rod. Again, G-R-A-G-G, if you're going to Google his last name. Rod, it's curious. We talk about the notion oftentimes that, that some will report uh, a number of the founding fathers as having been deists. I, and I find it curious because if we look at the actions of these men and the great risk that they took, the personal sacrifice, it, it would seem to me that it would take an individual of greater character um, and, and, and a sense of, of higher calling than just somebody who casually acknowledge the existence of deity out there it seems to me that most of the actions of these men in the founding days of this nation were people that were willing to sacrifice for a greater good because they knew the god that they served
1: well that's exactly right you have to remember when we talk about uh, the founding fathers the leaders of the american people in the colonial era at time of the american revolution that um, they reflected also the world view of the american people or they wouldn't have been holding office and the worldview of the American people, without question at that time, was a faith-based. It was the Judeo-Christian worldview, and it's no accident that the Declaration of Independence uh, begins with what it calls a uh, self-evident truth that all men are created equal and are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, namely life, liberty, and, and the pursuit of happiness. Uh, the Declaration of Independence had to be acceptable to the american people who are going to live with it and in many cases going to die for it and the signers knew that and they knew they had to have biblical justification for something as big as an independence movement or a revolution and so that's why the declaration of independence is laced with the language of faith half of it makes the case against king george the third because americans came to to view him in great numbers, as did these crafters of the Declaration, as uh, a leader uh, who was unfit to be a ruler of free people because they had come to view him as a tyrant who wanted and intended to usurp the higher law of God and replace it with the law of man. And Americans, uh, being biblically literate, were very conscious of the whole biblical doctrine of submission to authority. And so they were reluctant revolutionaries. And not until uh, until the great numbers of them came to believe that uh, he was attempting to uh, usurp or take uh, authority over the higher law of God did they move into the ranks of uh, revolutionaries. And uh, they then came to view him and, and Parliament to a lesser degree as tyrants who were uh, who were seeking to repress these inalienable or God-given rights. And they believed they had a biblical and moral duty to resist that. Now, as far as uh, the leaders and those who are deists, that really is something that has been uh, greatly exaggerated uh, in our day, and it really probably reflects more about uh, where American culture is today than it does the historical
0: evidence of that. Well, to be sure, I mean, the attempt, I think, too, to take God and faith out of the equation, to kind of neutralize America's stand historically, on the position of faith, uh, and and kind of eradicate our faith-based roots. I mean, let's face it, if, if you can eliminate that at the foundation, it's much easier then to move forward in uh, not only creating a religion-neutral America, but in some corners, even a religion religious-hostile America.
1: Well, you know, the great unreported story of our day, uh, of the last uh, 50 years, is the shift in the national consensus, or the shift in the Worldview of america's leadership from a historic traditional uh... judeo-christian worldview that holds that god is the authority over all things and god should be the central focus of all things to a man-centered secular or humanistic worldview that says that man not god is the authority over all things and that man not god should be the center of all focus Now that's a seismic shift and uh... and you know why it's uh... having a trickle-down effect in the, American population, you can see uh, that the leadership in American virtually all fields has really shifted in that direction. In in the field of uh, uh, business, uh, law, government, uh, entertainment, uh, the popular media, the culture, popular culture, the the media, the news media, uh, movies, television, uh, healthcare, it's shifted from this God-centered worldview to a man-centered worldview. And then when you have Something like that happens. It means that those who are uh, responsible for conveying information have uh, are uncomfortable with things of faith, particularly a biblical faith. They are um, uh, they don't understand it in some cases. Uh, they're uncomfortable with it. Sometimes they really resist it or even hostile to it. And so, for those reasons, I think that the uh, the fundamental foundation of America's origins as a nation, which was Faith-based, and that faith was the Judeo-Christian worldview, has um, has really uh, almost been uh, it's been neglected. It's uh, and, and it's to a point that most Americans today, or at least many Americans today, don't know the story.
0: Yeah, and, and sadly enough, and of course, the irony is we see the manner in which this is. Demonstrated, the results of which are demonstrated in society and the world around us every single day. I mean, look at the disintegration of what's going on in our country morally and economically. Uh, there's proof positive, and even more so than what ought to be a firmer drive to return back to the understanding of our faith-based roots, um, the, the, the acceptance of the reality that colonial America was built on a foundation of biblical faith and that any time you waver from it, you are going to be open for some pretty scary times, which we find ourselves in these days. By the hand of providence, how faith shaped the American Revolution, and hopefully will be the guide to the next one. That's my subtitle, my sub-subtitle. Rod Gregg, its author, our guest on this segment of Lifeline. Again, a number of great resources that Rod has penned down through the years for those interested in... uh, a real legitimate view of the faith influence on the founding of our nation. Then to, again, for parents out there that are homeschoolers, if you're looking for great teaching content, then, again, Google his name, Rod Gregg. You can find lots of great resources, too, all of which available on the web and through Amazon.com by the hand of Providence. Well, that's going to do it for this edition of Lifeline. Thanks so much for being with us. And if there was anything you heard on today's show that you'd like to hear again or share with a friend, Grab a copy of the Lifeline podcast. Simply log on to KFAX.com. That's KFAX.com for the Lifeline podcast. Our producer is Wanda Sanchez. I'm Craig Roberts. Till next time round, remember, just don't keep the faith. Get out there and share it and make it a great evening. So long.
1: Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership,
2: staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Communications. All rights reserved.